You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of just being able to gather together as your children. And Lord, we just pray this morning that we'd be able to understand the precepts which you have given us for all relationships. But as we focus in on the relationship of marriage and family, we ask, Lord, that you would grant us grace and understanding for these things, because we know that it's only by your grace, first of all, that we can apply these truths, but we We know that you'll be glorified and that we'll uh, be able to realize the fullness of what you have for us in this life by obeying your word. We just ask you to guide us now, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's no shortage of books on marriage. And in fact, uh, there's many Christian couple retreats now and conferences. There's some in Coeur d'Alene that have been very good. They help with biblical principles of marriage. There's just just an abundance of material out on marriage. Uh, Many churches are doing classes such as this, um, our series on marriage. But as we look overall at the attrition rate, Even within the body of Christ, we have to wonder, why is that so high? And I'm sure that there are many Christian counselors, and I think there's many uh, psychologists even that uh, are trying to understand why this breakdown in this relationship of marriage. Why is the attrition rate so high? Well, it's not in the Christian realm, due to a lack of information available, books. We have the scriptures. We have books that expound the scriptures. We have books that focus on relationships, marriage, family. And yet, as we consider this, we have to think about that. Why is it that there's such a great attrition rate in this realm within the body of Christ? So, you know, I've pondered this for years, and yet I recognize in my own life, when I fail to apply the truths of God's word, everything breaks down in a relationship. So it's when we're true to God's word, and I know that may seem simplistic in looking at the overall aspect of problematic marriages, but yet that's the essence of how the nucleus of the family is held together, and that is through obedience to God's word. So we have to understand some things here. First of all, uh, as we look at these principles, we've covered the aspect of God's design for marriage. Why did he give us marriage? We've looked at the husband's role. We have been looking at the wife's role. We're going to look at... uh, dealing with conflicts and communication and marriage as we go along, all from a biblical perspective. 
as we have considered these things before we began the roles and functions of understanding the man's role, husband's role, father, and the wife's role, we, we looked at the aspect of the requisite for that. The requisite is to be filled with the Spirit. Apart from that, we can have all the intellectual knowledge about the Bible. We can memorize verses. We can go to conferences, seminars, Bible studies, Sunday school. And apart from applying these truths in the power of God's Spirit, we have no power. So we have no ability to fulfill that. You know, I find it interesting. I I like to read some of the uh, Puritan writings and we purchased a book that it's called The Worldly Saints and it's written by a man by the name of Leland Riken. And it covers some of the practices of the Puritans and some of it in detail. It shows some of the flaws in their uh, legalism and so forth that it crept into part of that uh, movement or part of that era of the Puritans. And yet they were exemplary in many areas of their life as Christians, as members of the community, as workers, and as a family nucleus. They could, uh, in many ways, exemplify what Scripture has called us to. And uh, as I read some of these uh, accounts, which applied to the aspect of what we're looking at now in the family structure and the family nucleus, one um, Puritan uh, said this about the family. <clears throat> or Excuse me, one man re- uh, reviewing the Puritan's ethics said this about the Christian community in the Western world and specifically in the United States. He said, one world travel leader declared this. He finds North America Protestantism man-centered, manipulative, success-oriented, self-indulgent, and sentimental as it is. Blatantly, it is 3,000 miles wide and one half inch deep. We are spiritual dwarfs. The Puritans, by contrast, as a body of were giants. They were great souls serving a great God. In them, clear-headed, passion, warm-hearted, and compassion combined, the Puritans were visionary, practical, idealistic, realistic, goal-oriented, methodical. They were great believers, great hopers, and they greatly suffered. So that was his take as he studied uh, Puritan history and then evaluated that in light of uh, American Christianity. Well, whether we think that's uh, to the extent that he claimed, we have to evaluate it in light of our own lives. How are we, when it comes to applying these truths, if we consider what we've learned so far or studied, I say, I make a contrast between study and learn. You can memorize scripture. Many of us here have memorized scripture and uh, to our 
conviction, I would hope, that the youth in this body and the children in this body outshine us greatly in the area of memorization. Some of us, I speak for those in my age category, don't have the memory capacity perhaps that we did or hope to have it this time. But it isn't just memorizing scripture. It's the application of scripture in which we are actually practicing the truths of God's word where things come together and where we're actually obeying God's word. It just isn't knowing God's word, but doing God's word, as James says. So as we approach this, I want to make some comparatives with the Puritan era and the scriptures. As we've been looking through this First Peter 3, now I had a question that came up in regards to women working outside of the home. Uh, this was after the class. I, I didn't really address that specifically. Uh, as we look in society and we find the number of broken homes in which families are separated and women are forced into the work uh, field away from home and away from their children. Many children are put in daycare centers. Many uh, children are left to their own to come home take care of themselves and fend for themselves. They may be 10, 12, or younger, and left to themselves while the woman is forced, the mother is forced outside to work. So what does God's word say about that? Well, we began to look at that, and I'm going to address it more specifically when we get into the role of uh, parenting, but it is addressed in Titus 2. So we have to consider that When Paul addresses the older women in the church to minister to the younger women, uh, the category that we might frame that in is women that are past childbearing age. They perhaps have raised their own children or their own children are out of the house. So those women are called from God to minister to the younger women to be keepers of the house and love their husbands. And I'm paraphrasing because I'm not in that text. But when we break that down and that home unit is fractured in that way, it forces people into a compromising place. It doesn't mean that a woman is prohibited from being in the workforce outside the home. That's not what it's saying at all in Scripture. But when the family unit breaks down, it's forced upon them. So we used a couple of examples last week, Priscilla and Aquila, working together, tent making. They helped and worked with Paul. There are many women in Scripture that uh, the woman of Proverbs 31. uh, So there's... We could do a study on that in itself to find out how many women worked outside the home in order to either help their husbands or just to provide for their families. Um, I didn't address the account whether they were single or whether they were married, except in the case of 
Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife. So as we consider that, um, we have to understand that this is where the church really should be uh, considering its priorities. Uh, when we think of a widow, a uh, widow is uh, one, it's not just one who suffered a death of a spouse, but it talks about a loss of a spouse. So you can incorporate those women that have been abandoned by their husbands in the same category. So as we think about caring for the church and caring for the widows and the single mothers or single the women that have been abandoned, we have to incorporate that in the structure of the body outreach. And that should take precedence over any any specific ministry that we have. So we have to consider these are mandates. And that didn't just start somewhere later on in the New Testament. It started right in the book of Acts. It was so specific that they didn't want the apostles to be burdened down, but they wanted them to make sure that the widows were cared for in Acts 6. So it's very specific. God cares and exalts the role of the woman, and he exalts the woman, contrary to the practices throughout history of man. So as we consider this, I want to frame that and we can discuss it in probably more depth when we look at the role of parenting later on. According to Puritan thinking, the very nature and moral fiber of society depend on what children have learned or failed to learn in the family unit. Cotton Mather said this, well-ordered families naturally produce good order in other societies. When families are under an ill discipline, all other societies will be disciplined. That's a true statement. And we can see it in our own society blatantly. So as we think of the role and the structure of family units, we have to consider what, how important these roles are. It's not just husband and wife, but when there is children involved, we have to understand how important it is for parents to guide their children in a godly manner so that they, in turn, turn out to be godly as they come to know Christ. So they learn much about marriage as they're growing up. You ever watched... Uh, a child when you're working with something or those of you that work in Awana, when they start observing at even a very young age, they try to imitate what you do. Uh, when my boy was very young and I had him out in the shop, I would be working on something. I'd look over and he'd pick up the same type of tool, hand tools, and he'd try to mimic what I was doing. Unfortunately, I was... Uh, a little bit impatient sometimes, and I was too concerned about my tool rather than helping him learn how to use that. Um, but children observe. Youth observe. We have to realize what are they observing and what kind of an example are we setting, whether we're married or unmarried. It doesn't matter. We're setting an example 
to everyone that makes an observation in our lives. They're watching us. So we can either be an example for good, for God's glory, or we can be the opposite. As we looked at the um, passage, let's turn to it, 1 Peter 3. The women got me distracted last week on a different topic, so we're going to come back to this uh, area of 1 Peter 3. I'm not going to let you get off that easy. (laughs) As we look at this text, um, there was an interesting quote that I hope I can find. Uh, Yes. There's a man by the name of Samuel Torshell. He wrote this, women are capable of the highest improvement and the greatest glory to which man may be advanced. I thought, you know, that's a high exalted view of a woman. And that's exactly what scripture does when we think of a woman. Oftentimes, when we look at these texts about submission, men are first to hang on to that. Um, From this perspective, position up here. I can see a lot of nudging and a lot of smiles, a lot of snickers. But here's what was said by one of the Puritans. Puritans said that a husband's headship, according to scripture, is not a ticket to privilege, but is a charge to responsibility. Think about that. It isn't something that is licensed for the husband to just dominate and rule over his wife, it is a God-given responsibility over the household. And how the woman responds to that is given to us here in First Peter as well as Ephesians and Colossians. And we looked at Ephesians prior to this. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. There's a aspect of that that we look at and we understand that this first part is not only a command from God, but it's an obligation for the wife. Uh, God commanded this because he knows that this is the best arrangement for a complete, happy, and fulfilled marriage. It in no way makes the wife inferior because when we get to verse 7, we see their joint heirs together. The man and woman are made by the same creator, of basically the same material, and both man and woman are made in the image of God. Spiritually, completely and totally equal, function, a different design. Husband and wives are partners, and they're not competitors. One Author said when he performs a marriage service and during the process of premarital counseling, he, he tells the young couple, he says, you know, when, once you enter into the covenant of marriage, it's no longer yours and mine in conversation, but ours. You're giving yourselves completely to each other unto the Lord by covenant. 
The next thing is we look at in verse 2, or the second part of verse 1, that even if some do not obey, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So the second part of this uh, exhortation and command is they have an opportunity to win the wayward husband. Now, this isn't talking about women marrying unsaved people, an unsaved man. That's not what the context is talking about. This is talking about a marriage. And in this uh, culture, as well as our culture, many times one of the spouses will get saved and the other one remains unsaved. So in this context is talking about the woman being a Christian and winning her wife by her very behavior. Now, as we said last week, uh, when that says without a word, it's not a, in the, to the exclusion of God's word. That's just talking uh, in reference to a quiet, submissive attitude because no one comes to know the Lord without the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. So we have to realize that this is just the attitude. It's one of submission. It's one of kindness, understanding, and patience, which is what? The fruit of the Spirit. So here again, uh, this headship is, is beneficial to both husband and wife. It's a safeguard for the wife. <clears throat> uh, Peter goes on to say that when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And we looked at that last week. Uh, that's talking about the wife being submissive unto the Lord and into the fear, in the fear of the Lord. That is reverence for the Lord. And then it goes on to say, do not let your adornment. That word adornment is um, kind of an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word cosmos, which is the ordered universe. And that's the word where we get cosmetic. So to put things in order, I guess, cosmetics are used for. Men don't have that luxury. We, we don't have much opportunity to alter anything. Here's what we are. So... He wasn't saying it all to be disorderly, nor was he trying to tell the women they didn't have to be careful how they dress. Again, he was just telling them not to make that the center of a focus or to focus their attention on that. But rather, he wanted them to be the, the he wanted it to be the hidden person of their heart. Incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. So as we think about that, how that's carried out, even in the midst of a difficult situation, and uh, many have experienced either personally or through family members the pain of a broken marriage. Uh, this is God's call to the wife to be the example even to the disobedient, it isn't a guarantee that the man will obey, but this is God's method of winning him by the 
example, godly example of the wife. Peter closed this section by pointing back to a real godly example, Sarah. Now, Sarah wasn't without flaws. When we studied Genesis a few years ago, it was interesting to see that Sarah and Abraham and Sarah were both listed in what? The great book of faith and chapter 11 of Hebrews. So we see that Sarah here is used as an example for women. It goes like in verse 5, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Um, that's probably a foreign concept in our society for a wife to call her husband Lord small l. Lord simply means master, authority, overseer. Women are smiling bigger than the men. <laughs> I couldn't hear that. <laughs> Thomas is sitting proud there, so. <laughs> Peggy. Knowing Bud, he would have been very submissive to that comment. (laughs) Well, the idea here, of course, is just that role of recognizing your husband as the head of the home. Now, how does this, um, how does this play out in the practical realm? Well, again, I found some interesting writings in the area of the Puritans and how they carried out their roles. And the man by the name of, a Puritan by the name of Samuel Willard expressed that a husband is to obey only if he can support his viewpoint from Scripture. And he must lay conviction of her duty to comply with him therein. A wife hath greater liberty of debating the prudence of the thing There is even a duty of mutual admonition. Both husbands and wives should choose the fittest season to reprove each other. I'll translate that into modern language. What he was saying there is, we discussed this a little bit last week, and that is, if a husband is urging a wife to do something that's contrary to Scripture, she has total and complete freedom to not do that. She doesn't obey something that she's told to do or urged to do or uh, asked to comply with that goes against Scripture. And here they were saying that she has every room to debate, choosing the fittest season to reprove each other. That doesn't happen in a public forum. (laughs) Nor does it happen, may I suggest, where there's... Your children are there if there's children. You don't try to reprove each other in front of somebody else. Neither would we reprove another brother or sister in front of somebody else. If there was something publicly that was done that you had to stop, 
it may be necessary to stop that, but the reproof should always try to be private. So that's what he meant by choosing the fittest season to reprove each other. Uh, one. Good. Oh, this is a good point. Ron just said something that is a key issue here. Don't try to work something out in the heated uh, moment. If one or the other spouse is angry, oftentimes that anger is accelerated to the point where they're not going to be reasoning. They won't have sound reasoning and they can't. Now, women, stop looking at your husbands here. Look up for it for right now. You cannot reason with somebody if they're in a fit of anger. Now, when one or the other is in that state, you really need to be praying for the other. Um, I hate to use myself an example. I'll just say I knew this uh, man and woman, and when they, um, the man did something that was uh, causing a conflict, and the woman confronted him, and he got angry. The woman tried to reason with him, and his anger just quenched the woman. So we have to understand that a lot of times people's defenses, when they get angry, they'll use that anger to try to protect themselves, control themselves. So a lot of times it elevates to physical anger where they... Yes, Judy. Yes. You're talking about parents and and then children observing that. Oh, yeah. That's why it's yeah. Go ahead. Exactly. That's an important point. And let me let me uh, just mention something in that regard. When I say that we should resolve this privately, it is important not to do that in front of the children because what you're doing is two things. You're setting an example, sometimes a very poor example. And secondly, one of those they're going to take and use that to their benefit if they can, which is to their detriment, really. But they're going to play one parent against the other. So they're going to, they're going to enter this battle one way or the other, or they'll, they'll be crushed seeing their parents fighting. So all of those elements come into play. So we have to be careful here and to recognize, as Ron said, to, to let things settle and then be able to start reasoning. If if a husband has offended his wife or done something to cause anger, and he doesn't humble himself and ask forgiveness and just tries to kind of sweep it under the rug and just, uh, well, time will go by, so you'll get over it, that isn't the way we handle things. Biblically, we need to ask forgiveness and to try to make things right, be at peace as much as we can. Carol. Um. 
really don't know. You know, when you just kind of work its way out. But if there's a situation going on and, and are, you know, trying to make a decision about whatever, I would turn to the Lord and pray. You know, if surely the day of the Lamb is shown and he brings the rest, I ask the Lord to reveal that to him or change my heart so I can see the least hardly ever argue. Mm-hmm. A good point there that Carol brought out, um, if there is a conflict and Carol realizes that they're in a conflict, she does something here, which I, I think is a good uh, point to make. She starts interceding on behalf of her husband, that God will either change his mind and then she prays that God will change her attitude towards whatever the situation might be. So we have to be looking at the other as more important than ourselves and being more concerned about them and then humbling ourselves and making sure that we're not the cause of the offense. Dorothy. Okay, tell me that. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, that's probably clear to the admonition that James gave of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We're going to be looking at some of these things when we're talking about conflicts and communication. But that was an excellent point. I'm glad you made that. Okay, as we look at the practical ways which uh, these principles are carried out, uh, there's great liberty in exercising the function and role that God has given to both husband and wife. It's for their own good, for their own protection, and the well-being of the entire family, the relationship. When I think of um, this relationship, I I mentioned sometime early, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, the young woman that's considering marriage and how to make observations about the potential husband and what qualifications to look for. And I said that, you know, they need to understand the biblical qualifications of a husband, understand what their role is and what the role of the husband is before they start deciding to uh, consider a relationship. What I didn't say is those that do not marry, because not everyone has a spouse. Not everyone uh, either is able to get married or even has that desire. Some uh, may choose to get married later in life. As we look at that, we'll consider that in the area of family and relationships uh, with the children. But we have to consider something here. Oftentimes, we overlook the uh, single women in the church or they feel excluded because they don't have a spouse or something like that. We have to be careful and guarded of, of that. Because 
uh, families should reach out to all people in the body, and we should have this connection. You know, coming here on Sunday morning is just collective community worship together. We're in the Word, we're taught the Word, and we collectively gather to worship and sing together. But there isn't a lot of koinonia or fellowship that happens on Sunday morning. There's just not the opportunity for it because roasts do burn. So people, you know, when you, by the time you finish tearing down and head out of here, you're thinking about one thing, your lunch. So um, oftentimes we neglect that fellowship of the brethren throughout the week. So all I'm doing is trying to make an encouragement here that we should all be considering how to minister to those in the body. Um, as we consider the, uh, the call for the wife to be submitted to the headship of her husband, um, this is a way that a wife could use and take every opportunity to use her gifts and talents and skills to be a true helpmeet to that husband. I mean, a, a, a godly husband or a husband who is fulfilling his role will give that wife the ability to flourish and grow as God's made her to be. She'll be a great complement to him. She'll be a great fulfillment. And she can bring great joy to the relationship because if a man tries to dominate the woman, control, and the woman is trying to control her husband, everything else breaks down. There's no room for there's no room for growth. It quenches you spiritually, it quenches you emotionally, and it has a drastic effect on the entire home. If there's children, it affects them as well. So there's great fruitfulness and there's great liberty when a woman is submissive to her husband and the husband is exercising godly oversight over his wife. So that's why I wanted to be so extensive, I guess, or which is not really comprehensive, but I wanted to cover it enough to where we understood the two function uh of a husband and wife in the, in the nucleus of a marriage. Because if we don't understand that basic premise of authority and submission, then we don't, it's hard to go on as we consider relationships and parenting and uh, even relationships with one another. It's the way God designed it and it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. I didn't understand that for years, by the way. Thank you for asking a question before I annihilate myself. That's interesting uh, analogy. Kind of took my thought off that. <laughs> Been a while. I think I did dance at my son's wedding, though. 
I have to acknowledge that with my wife. Um, that was 15 years ago. I might have danced more recent than that because I think that uh, Tracy catered a yeah. wedding that I was at. Yeah. It's getting warm in here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. He, uh, I'm very happy that you've learned to choose the fittest seasons to reprove each other. Okay. Is there any question? We got to change the subject here. Um, my color changes rapidly when I. Um, is there any questions? Please <laughs> feel free. <laughs> Comments. Well, I really uh, I want to examine as we go along here. I want to look at as, this coming couple of weeks the area of communication, the area of trying to resolve a conflict, whether it be with each other, conflict with somebody else, or a member of the family. Um, when I went down to, when I go down to visit my family in California, we've got a lot of unregenerate extended family and, uh, cousins, nieces, nephews. Um, so, um, we don't have any parents or aunts or uncles anymore, but we see a lot of conflict. I mean, every time there's a family gathering, how many here have family gatherings in which you have unregenerate families come and sooner or later there's a big argument. Yeah, a lot of us. Uh, could be Thanksgiving, could be Christmas, it could be Resurrection Sunday. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's not sacred to them. And, you know, it's time for them to feast and see what football games are on. Or, you know, it doesn't matter. The area of Christian... Uh, Witness is how to handle those conflicts, but most of all, how do we handle our own conflicts? Are we able to do so in a loving manner that really brings resolve and resolution and uh, reconciliation? Or do we just kind of try to settle things down? So I want to examine that in light of uh, Scripture and how we might apply some precepts to that because Think of it, um, it's not just the family unit that this breaks down, that we have breakdowns in relationships. It could be at work, it could be within a church family, uh, extended family, neighbors, um, all kinds of ways. So we have to understand we may have failed in these uh, areas in our life, and yet we have to realize that God is a God of second chances. He wants us to repent, to follow his principles in order to accomplish his will. So oftentimes we look at uh, the family unit and we think, well, what can we do now? Where are we at? We're going to have some impact. If there's a broken family, you're going to have impact on children. Uh, you're going to have impact. So 
on, on grandchildren. So you're going to have uh, relationships that continue throughout your life uh, that you have to recognize how God wants us to respond in those relationships. Uh, youth, we think of uh, how, how do you respond to situations uh, in your daily activities? You know, some of you in the public school realm, uh, boy, you're exposed to all kinds of uh, temptations. How do you respond to that? How do you handle those temptations? I, I, I think that the age that we're living in now, there's probably more avenues to attack Christians than in the history of the church. It isn't that man has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and yet the means in which people are attacked now has been so expanded that it's uh, it's overwhelming until you bring it back and understand that we are more than conquerors in Christ. We have the ability to live in this world. God didn't choose to take us out of this world when we got saved. He wants us to remain in. He doesn't want us to be sifted by Satan. He wants us to remain here for the purpose of making bringing glory to him. So how do we do that? It starts with our own lives. We can look at these principles and have a jaundiced look at our spouse or jaundiced look at somebody else, but it comes right back to us. What are we doing to obey God's word? We can't be complacent about that. We're living in a time now that we should really realize we're in a very different time in history. And there's more attacks against people's ethics and their faith than any time in the history of mankind, as far as I can see. It hasn't gotten as violent in our country as it does in third world countries, Christians in third world countries, as we've been in prayer meetings, which I would encourage you to go on Wednesday nights. We've been discussing some of those that are being martyred and are suffering for their faith in Christ. We don't experience that here to any degree, maybe social chastisement or mocking. But in countries in which they're serving Christ and they're hated, they are taking their very lives in their hands when they name the name of Christ and live for him. So we have to realize that even though we're blessed in many ways in this country, we still have many, many enemies spiritually. And we have to recognize how the enemy works and through what means. And we only can stand on the word of God. That's why I would suppose that the Apostle Paul was so careful to give sound theology and doctrine for the first three chapters of Ephesians and then the second three chapters, the application of that. And then he concludes with putting on the full armor of God, understanding that 
We are indeed in a battle. We're to be aware of the wiles of Satan. Satan wants to destroy the family nucleus. He'll do anything he can to do so. And our society, it just mocks Judeo-Christian marriage. It's a mockery. Whether it be entertainment, whether it be political, whether it be social, it's all looked at and mocked. That's why if you even mention Puritan or their ethics, even in the Christian realm, some people kind of raise an eyebrow and they almost think of it as comedic or something that's puritanical. When you say Puritan, they think puritanical. They think of some staunch person that's stuffed in a some kind of a suit of that period and just legalistically living their lives. Well, it's to the contrary. Puritans were not only, uh, they were mocked and they were uh, ridiculed and they were persecuted, but they were models in society in every way. As workers, many of the Puritans were very wealthy. They used their wealth in a godly way. But why? Because they had a great work, work ethic. And why was there such a low attrition rate amongst that Puritan era? Because they held to the biblical principles. And they lived it. It wasn't just uh, cognitive knowledge here. It was empirical. They lived their faith. They did, as Second Peter chapter 1 talks about, with being filled with the knowledge of Christ. That knowledge was the epinosis, the personal knowledge that reflected in their lives. And that's what God is calling us to. When Peter addresses the husbands and the wives, and when Paul does the same, it is a clear instruction, because God knows the attacks that come against this great and wonderful unit of the family. He knows the attacks that will happen. He doesn't want it to happen to his children. And if it does, he wants them to live in a godly manner, to respond with his word. Let's close for now. If there's any questions or comments, Father, we do thank you for your word, and we do pray, Lord, that you would, uh, in every way, enable us to appropriate your word by your grace and apply it to our lives, to our spouses, to our friends, to our family, to brothers and sisters in Christ, for the purpose, Father, of living in obedience to you, to bring glory to you, and to be able to be fulfilled in the way and the manner in which you've called us to. We just praise you and thank you and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.